So I had a friend, right? And she started doing the books for her father's business. And things, they weren't adding up. For some reason, a check was sent every month to an address she didn't know about. So she decided to investigate. Drove out to the place, knocked on the door. A little girl answered. Hello, may I help you? My friend was shocked because this little girl looked exactly like her. Yeah, Daddy had a secret family. It made my friend wonder, who was that guy she'd been calling Daddy? Who was he? Who was the guy sitting down to dinner every night? Who was the guy tucking her into bed? Was that guy a stranger? Sometimes, the person we think we know best, we don't know at all. Today, we're going to explore that mysterious other, the person we don't really know. From PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents The Stranger. Get ready to pull back the curtain. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Okay, so we all have secrets from our past. Past lives that we'd rather our kids never know anything about. And often we can keep these secrets our whole lives. We can take them to our grave. But sometimes... No matter how hard we try, our past comes back to find us out. My name is Marie Walsh. I'm in my 50s. For three decades, I stayed home with the children and chauffeured them to their sports. And all that time, I was harboring a secret. Something happened that I was living with all those years. It all sort of exploded on me. I knew that the past had caught up with me. I'm gardening one day, and I get a knock on the door, and a man says that he's trimming the trees next door, and would I come out and look at it? When I stepped out, he flashed a badge and said, are you Susan Lefebvre? At first I said, no, I'm not. Then he pulled out my mugshot from when I was 19 that moment I knew that my two worlds had collided. I had been arrested with a boy. We were at a restaurant and I was waiting in the car. I didn't know why he didn't come out. He was supposed to get a pizza. And when I went into the restaurant, police surrounded me with guns and then found out that he had sold a small amount of hard narcotics to an undercover agent, and they arrested both of us. The drug war had started right around this time. There was an immense amount of pressure on me to plead guilty and take what was the plea deal, and I would get a year's probation. And on the way into the courtroom for the sentencing, the prosecutor met me at the door, and he said, don't mention that any promises have been made. It's all set up with the judge to give you a year's probation. So I went into the courtroom. I had never been in trouble before. My first offense, I hadn't even done it. And the next thing I know, the judge says, you're very young, but I want to send a message to society, and I'm giving you 10 to 20 years in prison. So next thing you know, I'm on my way to one of the more notoriously bad prisons in the world. There was this stench that I always remember. It was just a lot of run-down little buildings. It looked like a squatter's camp feeling, like it was at the end of the earth. From my cell, I remember looking out to a house way beyond the fence. And it was just a little house, but now I envied that they were on that other side of the fence with a house, and they could turn the lights on when they wanted, and they could walk out of the house I'd been in the prison for six months. I didn't get any visits. And then finally, one day, 
they did call my name on visiting day. It was my grandfather. That's when he told me that no one was doing anything and that he felt I should escape and that he would help me. And I'd heard stories about girls getting caught on the fence. I was having to tell myself that I was capable of facing the people shooting at me from a guard tower, dogs that would chase me. I just said, you know what? I can't be afraid anymore. I have to do what I have to do. One morning then, before the sun came up, I just bolted for the fence. I climbed up and threw a jacket over the barbed wire, jumped to the other side. I remember hitting the ground, and then I started running. This was February, so there was no cover of foliage. Their helicopter came out and hoovered overhead, so I hid by a tree for a moment and caught my breath. I just remember my heart was going to pop out, and I just said, I just got to keep going. I just can't stop. I still remember the sight of my grandfather's car at the end of the woods. And I jumped in the back seat, and he just hit the pedal and took off. Grandfather took me back to his house. My parents were there, put a couple hundred dollars in my hand. Felt like we'd probably never see each other again. I soon after that left, but it, not until I left the Michigan border and we were just zooming along the highway did I really feel like, wow. When I jumped that fence and left that, I really was leaving everything behind. You know, you have a few days of nothing but cornfield to just think. And I said to myself, I'm going to just pretend like everybody was in an accident. I made it in my head where Susan, this girl that couldn't cope with things, and my parents, who were very critical, they ceased to exist. I even acted out in my mind, seeing caskets. I needed to just be a different person with a different name. So that's when I picked the name Marie. I first came to San Diego and I just saw the ocean glittering and the sky real pastel and bright and I just said, I feel like I've arrived where I was supposed to arrive. Five years later, I met a guy and got engaged. I thought, well, I better tell him when we decided we'd get married. He exploited the situation of having this control over me. I vowed then that there was nothing to be gained by telling anybody. By the time I met my husband, I said to myself, it puts the person at risk. What can they do? And every once in a while, I'd wake up in the dead of night and just go, oh my God, this is my cross to bear. Thirty years later, after they re-picked me up at my house, my daughter was there, and I was flanked now by two detectives. I just told her that this was something that happened long ago and we would take care of it. Not to worry, and she started crying and hugging me, just knowing what are these police coming to take my mother away. I asked him if I could call my husband, and I had to tell him that the police were there and they were going to take me to jail because I had escaped from prison. I had been a wanted fugitive all this time. At my hearing in 2008, my family had all flown out. They wouldn't even let my family sit in the first row. I couldn't even hug my kids, even though I hadn't seen them for months. That just broke my heart. I finally got on stand and I turned to the judge and I told him the whole thing. After the hearing, then they were to decide, and that morning the warden called me in at the prison and said that they had decided that I wouldn't get out. And then a few hours later, I saw her again, and she said that they had a complete reversal it was unanimous that I would be released. 
on the final release day, my husband flew out. I finally walked through the doors that day and left the prison in a very different way than I had years ago. I'm just really lucky. Hey, I am free. I escaped this terrible fate. My only real regret is that I didn't thank my grandfather more. I got to see what it could have been like and then I escaped it. Thank you to Marie Walsh for that story. And here's the good part. Marie's story is even more complicated and exciting than we could fit into the radio. To hear more about our experience, check out the book, The Tale of Two Lives, The Susan LaFave Fugitive Story. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Julia DeWitt. Now when Snap Judgment returns, someone's going to get knocked on the head. Someone smells like teen spirit. And someone gets by on the kindness of strangers. When Snap Judgment, the Strangers episode continues, stay tuned. Sherry's Berries today for guaranteed gift satisfaction. These giant, freshly dipped strawberries from Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99 and over 40% savings or double the berries when you order just $10 more. You just need my code BEAT when you order. They're dipped in white milk and dark chocolatey goodness topped with chocolate chips with decorative swizzle or nuts 40% off from Sherry's Berries. Enormous, romantic, fresh, juicy, mouthwatering. I just got my box of hand-picked chocolate dip, gift wrap, climate sealed, delicious berry goodness. Lord, it's got the dark chocolate. It's got the light chocolate. However you like your chocolate, if you know what I mean. It's all up in there. Here's the only way to get this amazing Valentine's Day deal. Giant, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99 or double the berries for just $10 more. Visit B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in BEAT. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone and type in BEAT. Order today before they sell out. Hey, write this down on the face of your iPod. It's NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's a spirited discussion of movies, books, television, and nostalgia. You can find it on iTunes under Podcasts, and it's you wrote it right there on your, uh, on your iPod. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Stranger episode. Today, we're wiping away the mystery from some of the people closest to us. In our next story, it comes from a high school principal, Stephen Rochelle. Stephen always had a clear relationship with his students. But when it came to his own son, Matthew, things got complicated. Let me see if I can get a real good picture of Matt. Yes, I think you got. Oh, that's the picture I love. That smile and those eyes like his mom's. He was a handsome child. I noticed now, looking back, Matt was my clingiest child. He cried easily, and he was the, the type of child that um, was a peacemaker. 
I grew up in a neighborhood in South Central LA where many of the kids didn't have their dads in their homes. And people, um, they want to be the super basketball player or the football player or the, the business person. For me, when my children came, I wanted to be super at that. That was my definition of who I was as a person. In the 12th grade is when Matthew's grade started to tank and go down. My wife went up to the school one day to just kind of check and see, and they walked around together, and Matt told her that no one at the school liked him. You know, he felt like there were people talking about him all the time. And he even said to my wife, see, they're talking about me now. Those people right there, they don't like me. And that's when she thought, we have, we have a problem here. We took him to the doctor, and the doctor, after a, a series of tests, thought that Matt had what's called a thought disorder, which I took some optimism from because it, it sounded benign. My wife, she said, you know, Steve, thought disorders are a um, category, and under that category of thought disorders is schizophrenia. Well, I knew what that meant, and I think that's when I first lost it. I cried, um, a cry I don't think I've ever cried before. Um, it was that feeling where you cry so hard that you think you're going to throw up. The next thing we knew, we got a phone call from the police station saying, do you have a son named Matthew Rochelle? Yeah. Well, he's down at the police station. We found him last night with a gun. And he was shooting up in the air. When we came to him, he said he was trying to stop the violence, that it was too much crime, and that he was ordained to do something about that. I, I remember thinking, who is this kid? I don't recognize Matthew. And that's what schizophrenia does. Um, it can't, in a night, take what you will die for and what you live for and turn it into um, your worst nightmare. Not too long after that, uh, Matthew had been arrested once again. The police told us he was charged with breaking and entering, that he was talking about saving somebody named Alicia Keys, who was being raped in a house, and his goal was to save her. So he was in Twin Towers. The county jail in Los Angeles, it's downtown Los Angeles, and he's subject to the taunts, to the fights, to the abuse that takes place between and amongst the inmates and the sheriffs. I'm calling every day. You know, this is Stephen Rochelle. My kid needs to get out of Twin Towers. You know, he needs to be in Patton. It's a facility, a mental health facility for the state of California. I'm writing letters. Do you have a bed? No, we don't have a bed, so we're waiting every day. One of the reasons why you have children is this concept of hope. What this illness does is to rob you of that hope. So you start making deals in your head where you go from, well, I hope my son will be the next president of the United States. The illness makes your hope go, I hope my son doesn't kill himself or kill somebody. So, one day on the way from work, it's about 3 o'clock, just ordered some Cuban food, and I'm reading the newspaper. And I see headlines that says, inmate charged with murder at Twin Towers. And so whenever I see something like that, I'm like, okay, what the heck is that about? And it says, Matthew Rochelle, 21-year-old suspect, and I'm thinking my kids got killed. I'm freaking out. And I go on to read, kills an inmate who was his cell partner. I dropped everything. I had already ordered my food. I grabbed my phone. I'm shaking like a leaf. I jump in the car. I call my wife. I go, Nina, Matthew killed somebody in prison. She goes, what? I go, he killed somebody. She goes, oh my God, Steve. Oh my God, Steve. Oh my God, Steve. Oh my God. I go, babe, just hold on. I'll be there in a minute. Get home. 
I gave her the newspaper. She's just in total shock. Come to find out that um, another mentally ill man was placed in the jail cell with Matthew, a six by nine jail cell. It's supposed to be monitored every 15 minutes. Both of these guys are in there. Neither has medication. They're both delusional and it appears that they're not being monitored and they get into an altercation. The older man gets killed. The other one gets charged with murder. You know, I'm in education and one thing about a principal is that everybody wants to tell you <laughs> how well their child is doing. And so I get letters about whose child got accepted to what college. And I'm always so happy to hear it because some of these success stories are real turnaround stories. The irony is, is that the principal biggest life struggle is that my visits on the weekend are not to Howard University or Harvard or Yale or Princeton. My visits on the weekend are to Patton State Hospital. This is where my baby is. This is as good as it gets. And so that's the world I live in. There are times that I don't want to go because it can be very depressing sometimes to go to Patton State Hospital and see your kid there. When I do go, I have experiences where I'm just really sad. And that happened once and he came out to the yard where I was sitting and he goes, you okay? Oh yeah, I'm all right. I'm just a little sad. He goes, well, don't be sad. I'm okay. You guys send me stuff and I got everything I need. You know, the other people here, they don't have what I have. You know, you were a good dad. You just need to take care of yourself. Are you exercising? Maybe you should exercise a little bit and make sure you're eating right. And it's actually one of the things that I hope for. I think as a parent, you hope that at some point the tables will turn, that your children will be able, because of their experiences, to give you support and help you out. And so that moment when he came out and put his hand on my shoulder was a kernel of what I had always hoped for. Thanks so much to Stephen Rochelle for opening his heart and sharing his story with Snap. That piece comes to us from the amazing Leah Tao, who used to run the Maw, but Leah has recently set out on a new adventure, The Strangers Podcast. It's produced with support from the KCRW Independent Producer Project, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. We're going to have links on Snap Judgment, or you can catch it on storycentral.org. Next up, I wanted a rock and roll stranger story. So we sent Julia DeWitt to speak with renowned rock and roll singer-songwriter Damien Girado. This is Julia DeWitt at the Palace of the Arts here to interview Damien Girado. Nothing to have when all that you want is gone. Uh, my name is Damien Girado. I'm from Seattle, Washington play music for a living. When I was almost 13, I moved from Houston, Texas to the coast of Washington. I was pretty bummed. This is in 1986. Punk rock was brand new and it was super exciting for me. And I knew nothing about it and I loved the music so much. So to move to a town was no more than eight or 9,000 people where you can't get music. It's pretty desolate. So I depended on things like fanzines which I had to special order. Started seventh grade that year. There was a new kid who I became instant friends with. His dad managed this hotel called the Polynesian Hotel and Resort. We hit it off immediately because he also liked punk rock music. I depended on him to tell me what was really cool. And he only owned like four records. 
records that I copied from him on cassette, and I played them over and over and over again, like constantly. So he comes to school one day with a cassette in his hand, and it says Black Flag on side A, and on side B it says other stuff. And I said, where did you find this? He said, there's this guy who my dad hired to work on the janitorial staff. He said he can give me all the music I want. I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Here was someone who had not only a knowledge of punk rock, but loads of records, obviously, enough to make us mixtapes. So I said, I wanted to meet this guy. And he said, well, he's working today. In fact, I'm going to go pick up another cassette from him today. We went to the hotel. I'm just like fantasizing this kid our age, maybe a little bit older, you know, with a mohawk, leather jacket, you know, like the kind of that you see on postcards and movies, you know. And he said, oh, there he is. He's over there. And he, and he points at him. I'm looking around for this person, like I think it's in my mind. Where is he? Because all I see was this scrawny kid with like, long blonde hair and a denim jacket. He looked like, like, like he'd be a Metallica fan. Because we were more punk rocky looking than he was, you know? And I said, that guy? He said, yeah. We just walked up to him and I said, my name is Damien. Can you make me a mixtape? He's like, yeah, sure, I can make you a mixtape. So for the next three or four months, constantly, like once a week, we're getting mixtapes. Like a lot of them. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme! Give I need some more! Give me, give me, give me! Don't ask what for! I saw your mommy and your mommy's dead! Whoa, dude! He was, uh, very shy. He didn't really talk that much when we hung out. I never even bothered, like, learning really his name. We smoked in a hotel room. We talked a lot about bands. And then eventually, my friend comes to school and says he got fired from the job and he's no longer working there. And I remember just feeling like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. You know, it was like the end of my life at that point. In the fall of 1988, my parents moved to Seattle, and I discovered a college music credit station called KCMU. KCMU Seattle. Better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. Oh. And it's now called KEXP. And I remember getting being so excited about the music they were playing, I started recording whatever they were playing on the air. I was over the mixtapes. Coming up on KCMU, the Pixies. Been trying to meet you. This is a whole new world. And I was just getting, I was recording the radio on these cassettes that I had got from this guy on the coast. And they announced a Butthole Surfers show. Sonic Youth is going to be opening Butthole Surfers and a group called Nirvana. And then they played Love Buzz, which had just come out that week. And I remember hearing Love Buzz and being thinking like, oh my God, this song is amazing. I can't wait to see these guys. I go to the show and out walks Nirvana, who opened up the show, and the lead singer, I remember just thinking to myself, he looks very, oh my God. That's the guy I was getting cassettes from. And that's how I met Kurt Cobain. Yeah, I heard his early demos, you know, what would be eventually like, but I recorded over those cassettes that he gave us. So I ended up recording their debut when they played Love Buzz, and I recorded it onto a cassette over bands and compilations that he gave me. I love Nirvana, they're, they're definitely my, my, my favorite bands of all time. Punk rock started with Kurt Cobain and ended with Kurt Cobain for me.
of course. After being inspired by Nirvana, Damien went on to become a famous musician in his own right. Check out his latest album, Maricopa. And don't forget, for more stories from musicians about the story behind the songs, check out Stephanie Fu's podcast, Stage Dive. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu and Julia DeWitt. Now don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment, the Stranger episode, will be right back. Stay tuned. Don't forget to download Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. It's a spirited roundtable of movies, books, nostalgia, and television. You can find it on iTunes under podcasts. Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is the Snap Strangers episode. Today, we're trying to brush away some of the mystery surrounding the other. And that can be hard because strange things happen. Strange things indeed. Our next piece comes from one of the very first Snap Judgment episodes. Three years ago, It seems like a lifetime ago now, but it begins with this one guy, Douglas Leach. He's a good brother. Lives not too far from Snap Studios in that other city by the bay. Well, one evening, Douglas walked home from work. He arrived at his apartment, opened the door of his apartment building, and right there, laying on the floor, waiting, Douglas saw something that gave him pause. I walked into the apartment foyer, and I looked down, and there was a Polaroid photograph on the ground. So I picked it up, I looked at it, and it actually was a picture of what I was standing there looking at in real life. In other words, it was a picture of the door I was about to go through, a picture of the foyer in which I was standing. Someone had taken a picture and thrown it on the ground. Correct. So I walked over to the stairway, and I looked, and there was another picture on the ground. Now, and it's a picture of the stairway. A picture of the stairway. And you're like, what are you, what are you thinking at this point? Now I, I'm just a little uneasy because the now from the first picture being maybe an accident, I dropped it on my way in. The second one, it's deliberate. Somebody's up to something. Yes. So at this point, I'm, I'm just becoming a little nervous. The hair started to go up on my arm for some reason. So you get picture number three, you look at it, and you continue up towards your apartment. So now I go to the hallway door that leads to the apartment wing. So I opened the door, and there on the ground was another photograph. And I can see down the hallway, it looked like a million miles down there. I can see my door... And I can see that there's a spill of light coming from the apartment across from my door, and that door is open. And there's another photograph, one last photograph, on the ground down at the end of the hallway. I, at this point, was scared out of my mind, because this was the end. I stood there for a moment, absolutely quiet. you got to make a snap judgment right now. Either I'm going to go to my apartment, or I'm going to do something else. What did you do? I practically fled that building. What did you discover? Discovered that after I had left, somebody noticed there was a guy, the apartment tenant of the apartment that had the open door, was sitting in his window. And they called the police. They came, and he was mentally ill and had been off his medication and was threatening to jump. So they got him down and saved his life. What did the final picture look like? The final picture was of that window in which he was sitting, except that there was nobody in the picture. It was simply the open window. He jumped. I can only surmise that, yeah, he would have made that picture true, just like the other four. 
So it would have been a window without him in it, and he would have jumped to kill himself. Trust those premonitions. Yes, please do. You trust yourself, Doug? I do. Snap judgment. Oh, yes. It makes me nostalgic just thinking about it. Big thanks to Douglas Leach, who has continued to attract strange goings-on in his world. That piece was produced by a stranger to no one and a friend to all. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Today, we're exploring how sometimes the strangers in our lives are the ones we're closest to. It's a paradox, and Step Judgment's own Nick Vanderkolk tells the story of James and Molly. Molly moved into James's dorm in college. He's your quintessential tall, dark, and handsome guy, and they started dating a short while later. They had been together for about two months when she made plans to visit a friend in Boulder, Colorado. That time frame, two months, is important for reasons that will become clear later on. So keep it in mind. When James had found out I was going to Boulder, he kind of jokingly said, oh, well, when you're there, you should go hang out with my family. Obviously, in a normal relationship, you would have no interest in meeting parents when he's not even there with you. But I was extremely curious. So I had said, well, why not? Just before leaving for the trip, they got into a massive fight. Molly doesn't remember exactly what it was about, but it was severe enough that she decided not to answer his phone calls. I had tried to play a little hard to get, ignored his phone calls for a couple days. Molly was walking through downtown Boulder when the first call from James came through. I ignored it, but then 10 seconds later, the phone rang again, James, ignored it. 10 seconds later, phone rings again, James, ignored it. This is not a good sign. This is a little crazy that he's just calling me like this. He's either totally crazy and I need to answer and tell him that he's crazy or something's wrong. I answered the phone and I heard a man's voice and it wasn't James. The first thing that came into my mind is he knows I'm not going to speak to him, so he's having some other person call to, like, mediate between our fight. I was like, who is this? He was like, well, you're the last person he called. He's had an accident. I got immediately afraid, and I was like, what happened, what happened? He's like, well, we were both mountain biking in a Rostradero preserve up in the foothills near Palo Alto. Visibly, he looks fine, but I think he fell and hit his head because he's having amnesia. I was like, call an ambulance, but they're miles from the entrance to the preserve, so he couldn't do that. He had to walk him out. As they're walking out, I'm on the phone with this guy. I'm hearing this conversation go on in the background. James just says to him, excuse me, I think I've had an accident. Where am I? And the guy's like, you're in a Rastadero Preserve, mountain biking, what's your name? And then as soon as he would start to ask the next question, James would say, excuse me, I think I've had an accident. Where am I? In the meantime, I was running late to dinner to get to James's parents' house. So I was like, okay, I guess there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to go over there. When I got to James's parents' place, his mom was on the phone with him. She was like... Molly just arrived. Molly, your girlfriend. James, Molly, your girlfriend. James, you knew she was coming to dinner. So not only did he only have, at that point, maybe a 10-minute short-term memory, his long-term memory, he probably lost the last two and a half months. I remember his mom handing me the phone at one point, and what the hell do I say? I'm like, hey, you? Like, I mean, (laughs) I'm at your parents' house. They're great. His parents are looking at me, listening. 
I wanted to get off the phone as quickly as possible and call the other people who were with him who could actually tell me what the hell was going on. I have memories of memories that I'm not sure whether it's what was told to me or whether it was an actual memory. I first remember being in a hospital bed and I remember having my friends sitting around. That's James, of course. For many days after the accident, he couldn't form new memories and kept getting stuck in these kind of conversational loops. Sometime in the previous month or two, I had quit smoking, but I didn't realize that. And so I, I kept craving cigarettes. And then they would tell me that I'd stopped smoking. And somehow the logic, I respected the fact that I had stopped smoking, so I wouldn't insist. I'd sort of become disappointed and then forget about it entirely and ask again for a cigarette and then be told that I'd quit and then again be disappointed. When I first started becoming aware again, I kept asking over and over again what had happened. And one of the things they would tell me was, well, you remember that girl Molly? Well, you guys have started dating. I remember she smiled and laughed a lot. She was very blonde and excited about life. Wow, that sounds cheesy. I hope that gets cut out. <laughs> thought she was really fun and interesting and beautiful, but had barely had any conversations with her. So you could imagine waking up one day and having someone tell you that this girl that you thought was amazing was your girlfriend and that it had worked out. And so I'd get really excited about this and then forget <laughs> and then come back all the way through the same conversation again. I think there was something magical in the way that when you see that girl from across the room and you actually imagine how amazing she is, that was preserved. I skipped all the reality of getting to know her and understanding that she was a normal person and had things that were boring or unattractive about her as well. I went straight from the ideal vision of this person to knowing that she was part of my life. When I got out of the hospital, I went back to my dorm. Molly came back the next day. Literally the next memory I have is sitting on the floor in his dorm room. His textbooks and his folders were scattered on the floor. I didn't know what to expect. Does he have a 30-minute memory now? We sat down and we talked. I sat there on the dorm room floor with him and helped him figure out, okay, <laughs> these are the classes you're in. These are your professors. Let's write emails to your professors right now and tell them what happened. At that point, he was no longer having short-term memory problems. And that's when she told me that we weren't together anymore. Everyone thought that I was together with her, except for myself, who couldn't remember that I was together with her, which was in fact the case, because we had broken up. I never got back the immediate couple days before the accident. I'll never really know why we broke up. I remember what she told me, but I think she told me a sort of a sugar-coated version of it. If hearing that they had broken up is surprising, you're not alone. In Molly's version of events, she never mentioned anything about it. It was just a big fight. But you don't remember this at all? Okay, look. I called them up on the phone. I think the reason why I downplayed whatever that was is that whatever it was, I knew that I would give it another chance. But why tell him that you broke up afterwards? Because I think I wanted to paint an accurate picture of what our relationship was, which was tumultuous. We needed to work on some stuff. You might think going straight from not realizing you had a girlfriend to suddenly finding yourself in a two-month relationship and then having that relationship vanish before you even had a chance to experience it, that it would be emotionally exhausting. But for James... It wasn't something traumatic to then later be told that I wasn't together with her because it was an emotion or a feeling rather than a history or a memory that was being dismantled. But incidentally, we got back together a few months later. The two of them were given a clean slate. But would that fundamentally change their relationship? Most of the conversation I had with them on the phone went something like this. How would you characterize the fights in the first year of our relationship? No, I don't remember. I don't remember any of them. I remember it all being rosy and wonderful. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's probably not true. James, you know that we had those problems. <laughs> okay, whatever. I feel like you're being so aloof. Okay, Liz, I just, it's strange to think back to the details of dysfunctionality of a relationship. 
But don't worry, I won't remember this conversation in like two weeks. Oh my god. James and Molly broke up for good three years later. He's fully recovered now. Thanks so much to James and Molly for sharing that story with Snap. That piece was produced by Nick Vanderkolk. You know, every family has its black sheep. Someone who's apart, aloof, maybe even rejected. Either they left the fold or they got put out. And every once in a great while, you get to find out why. You know, I was never very close to my father. He was a quiet man, and he rarely showed affection. Well, when he did, it was in a subtle way. You know, like he would gently put his hand on my head. As I grew older, his silence became kind of an invisible barrier between us. You know, by 10, I was pretty much convinced he didn't love me. I remember one time, sitting in the back of our station wagon on a family trip, I made a bet with myself. If he said anything to me, directly to me, within the following 24 hours, it meant he loved me. He went 41 hours. <laughs> well, I grew up. I went to college far away from home. I worked hard at finding a career. And I finally returned to Los Angeles, and I settled down with a family of my own. My parents lived nearby, but my father and I still hardly ever spoke to each other. You know, the silence between us had just become normal. Then one day, a call came from my mother. My father had been diagnosed with a variant of Alzheimer's disease. Now, I've read about Alzheimer's and the wrenching pain that it causes, but my experience with the disease was different. I never could have anticipated how dramatically it would change my father's and my relationship. Uh, it happened on a spring day about six months after he'd been diagnosed, and I had decided to visit him with my five-year-old son, Jesse. I was nervous. I was nervous that my father wouldn't know who I was. I have to admit, after so many years of silence, I was glad to have my son there as kind of a buffer between my father and me. I remember the three of us sat out on the cold, concrete patio of the convalescent home. My father was wrapped in an old sweater, and he was watching as my son clambered over me like a little monkey on a jungle gym. I tried to make small talk, but my father wasn't listening. Instead, his eyes were studying the affection that I shared with my son. Then, he looked straight at me. His dark eyes were glowing. They had kind of an intelligence to them that they didn't normally have, and he began to speak. More words than I had ever heard before. My father's Alzheimer's had progressed to the point where his speech was disorganized and he mixed up names and places, but his meaning was clear. He said, watching Jesse reminded me of a long time ago. It's such a long time ago, but I have such a clear picture of him, of you, in my mind. You were a sweet little boy, my little boy. He struggled to find the words. Watching him, you, I never showed you how much I loved you, but I did love you. I loved you so much it scared me. Maybe you would get too connected to me, and then I would die and you would be cast out and alone. I was confused, and then staring into my father's eyes, I flashed back to the story of his father. When my father was a teenager, my grandfather got into some kind of trouble and told my father he intended to end his life. My father begged him not to do it and appealed to his mother, to their rabbi, and to others, but nobody responded. A week later, my grandfather shot himself. The Jewish community shunned my father's family. My father withdrew behind a wall of silence. I noticed his eyes getting heavy. I started to get up, but he held up his hand to say one more thing. I know I have this disease that makes it difficult for me to think and remember. But you know, 
I'm thankful to this disease, because without it, I don't think I could have said these things to you. He tapped his heart. I love you. He closed his eyes and fell silent again. Thank you, Dr. Barry Michaels, for sharing that story with SNAP. Check out our website, snapjudgment.org, for a link to Dr. Michaels' best-selling book, The Tools. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman. It's about that time. But don't get cranky. There's plenty more SNAP where this came from. Full episodes, movies, pictures, all of it snapjudgment.org Facebook yes we're on the Facebook Twitter iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud the NPR app we serve it your way this program was produced by myself and the strangest strangers ever to grace strange land give it up for the odd man out the uber producer Mr. Mark Ristich Pat Masidi Miller may be strange his beats or not. Stephanie Fu speaks in strange tongues. An assessment hears strange music. Julie DeWitt takes in strange animals. Renzo Gorio knows strange passageways. Nick Granico eats strange food, and Will Urbina thinks he's normal. Did you ever hear about that strange fella that raised a full-grown tiger in a New York apartment? Well, if you heard the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was behind this outrage, I want to put a stop to this slander. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, and putting man-eating tigers in people's apartment buildings, PRX.org. And you know this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could knock on a stranger's door, tell them you're from the bank, and you want to collect any extra deposits they might have free of charge. And when they thank you for excellent customer service, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and NPR. Contributors include POV, presenting American Promise, about the 13-year educational journey for two African-American boys. Monday Night at 10 on PBS.